Let's pray together. My Father, we are so thankful for this opportunity this morning to look at your word. We are so thankful, Lord, that Christ did condescend to us and took on flesh to ransom us. We're so thankful, Lord, that even though you are so far beyond us, so far above our understanding, so different from us, that you have written these words down so that we might know who you are and know something about you and about your greatness. So we ask this morning as we look at your word that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding that the explanation, the truth that is spoken to our hearts this morning would not come uh, from a man, but that it would come from your Holy Spirit working in us through the power of your word, that it would be preached faithfully and accurately, that it would be helpful to all those who hear. And Lord, uh, in my own heart, as I endeavor to preach this text, Lord, I ask that you would not hold my own pride and failings against those who hear, but that you would have mercy on us all this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. If you're visiting with us today, uh, we, we uh, the way we do things here is we go verse by verse through books. So if you want to get the big picture of a book of the Bible, this is a good good church for you to be a part of. Um, I've learned so much, as I say every week, from going through verse by verse up to this point. Um, it's really incredible, just the big picture, and we're seeing that more and more, even in our text today. Everything that we've been learning is building up to this point, is going to continue on through chapter 18 to, um, to get to this point. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 10 this morning. And if you found your way there, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before, him, before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven." You may be seated. So we've seen over the past several chapters, Jesus' ministry going from being a public ministry of works and miracles into a more private ministry at this time as he's getting closer to Jerusalem. We've, we saw in the last uh, chapter that Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John and that they saw uh, a glimpse of his glory and that he began explaining to all of his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die in order to accomplish the mission that God had given him uh, to die for us. And so as we've seen this develop over the last chapter, and as he's begun to speak more clearly to the disciples about the plan, he's also become less public in his ministry because he knows the closer that he gets to Jerusalem, the more hostility there's going to be, the more plans and, and things are being concocted to try to arrest him or uh, get him into trouble and ultimately to kill him. And so he's keeping things uh, low-key, so to speak, at this point so that he can continue on uh, training his disciples to be prepared for uh, whenever he leaves them. So we lead up to this point in chapter 18 
which is a challenging chapter. We're just getting into the first 10 verses this week, but you'll see over the next couple of weeks, this is a, a very challenging uh, chapter. It's challenging to teach because there's a lot here. I'm hoping I'll be able to get through everything that I've put together this morning, uh, but there's a lot here. So the, the title of the message this morning is Becoming the Greatest Disciple. So how do we become the greatest disciple? This is the question that's brought to them. So there's four things that I want us to consider as we look at this text. Before we do that, again, in the context, you'll notice right at the beginning of chapter 18, it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So at that time means immediately or in the same hour, some of your translations might say. So what, what that's saying is, is that the, chat, the section that we looked at last week about Jesus commanding uh, Peter to go and fish and get the temple tax from the fish's mouth for him and for Peter, that this story is happening immediately after that. So there's a connection here of, we know from the Gospels that some of the stories are rearranged uh, depending on what the Gospel writer is trying to, to do. But Matthew is making it clear in his gospel that these two stories of the temple tax that we read about last week and the greatest disciple are in the same conversation. They're in the same time period. So we want to understand that going in, and you'll understand in just a moment why that's significant. The first observation that I want you to make here is in verses 1 through 4 of entry before exaltation. Entry before exaltation. So let's look at it again. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there's, there's two aspects to this section here. The first is the question of exaltation. This is the question that the disciples are asking. They're, they're asking him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, let's talk about why. Why would they ask this question? The, uh, Luke tells us about the same story that they were fighting. He, he uses the word fighting. So this wasn't just a friendly discussion, but this was an argument uh, between these men of basically who is Jesus' favorite or who is the most powerful in the kingdom or who is going to be uh, the right hand we see later on that James and John's mother comes and, will my sons sit at your left and your right hand? And Jesus is like, that's, that's not for me to decide. So this is the debate that's happening here. So why is this happening? Well, if you look closely, this is part of why we go through verse by verse. If you look closely at chapters 16 and 17, you see a whole lot about one in particular disciple, and that's Peter. Do you remember it was Peter who confessed, you were the the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. Peter is the spokesperson for the apostles there. You see that uh, it is Peter uh, throughout these other stories that keeps getting mentioned, and specifically, remember, in the story immediately before this, in the same conversation, it was Peter who Jesus had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with about the temple tax, and it was Peter who Jesus did the miracle for of providing the, the money for the temple tax in the fish's mouth. And the money in the fish's mouth only paid for Jesus and for Peter's tax. It didn't pay for any of the other apostles' tax. So now there's all this talk about Peter, and it looks like the leadership is going to Peter, and Peter's speaking on behalf of people, and Jesus is talking about building his church on Peter. And there's all of this conversation going on. And so the natural conclusion that the disciples are coming to Peter must be Jesus' favorite disciple. Because all of these things are happening with Peter. Jesus isn't doing one-on-one -on -one miracles with me. He's not having these one-on-one -on -one conversations like he's having at Peter. We talked about last week when they were in Capernaum, it's most likely that Jesus was staying at Peter's house. Well, he doesn't stay at my house when we go to my town, but he stays at Peter's house. So why does he like Peter so much better than, <clears throat> than everyone else? So there's this question of exaltation there. They're jealous of Peter. Here's the other thing. The disciples were so concerned about what they were going to get out of the resurrection of Jesus that they forgot that he was going to suffer and have grief. That's what selfishness does to us. They forgot about the part of the reason why we're going to Jerusalem, guys, is because I'm going to suffer and die, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. They know that he's the Messiah, and their response to that isn't, 
like it was at the beginning of the last story, they were deeply grieved. All of a sudden, they forgot about all the bad stuff, and they thought, great, you're going to come into your kingdom and be Messiah. What do I, what, what do I get? What, what, what do I get out of it? And so this question is, well, who's going to be the greatest, Jesus? Is it going to be Peter? If it's going to be Peter, just tell us that it's going to be Peter. We want to know who, the, who your favorite is. So there's this question of exaltation. But then there's the question of entry, which Jesus responds to them with. So Jesus is saying the greatest in the kingdom is like one of these little children. And so there's, there's two things that Jesus is saying that a person needs to have in order to come into his kingdom. They have to have a new birth and they have to have a new father. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, for one, the, the word here that's used for child, this is talking about a, a small child, so like an infant or a toddler. And, and again, if, if we look at in the context, uh, if indeed they were staying at Peter's house and the disciples were there having this conversation with Jesus, then it's likely that this was a child in the home. It could have even possibly been one of Peter's children because we know that Peter was married. That could have been the child that Jesus was calling to himself. So they're basically sitting in the, in the meeting area of the home having this conversation, and Jesus calls one of the kids over. Hey, come here. And the kid comes over, and he picks up the kid and puts the kid in front of them and says, if you're not like this kid, you can't be in my kingdom. So what, what does he mean by that? Well, we have to understand that at this point in history, their understanding of children was very different from what we have in, in modern American culture. So the Romans understood uh, children as basically being wild animals until they reached a certain age. And so in a household, the way that the hierarchy would work is you had the, the man, the oldest man in the home would be the head of the household, and then you would have... Um, the uh, women of, of the household, you would have the slaves that worked in the house, you would have the, the animals, either like working animals or pets, and then you would have the children underneath of that. Um, most of the, a lot of the children would die, so they didn't, you know, sometimes they wouldn't even really name them for a while because uh, they didn't really know if they were going to make it. And so the idea was if this child grows up to a certain age where they can actually go to school and they actually have some sense and they don't just, you know, scream and cry all the time, then at some point, you know, they, they actually, uh, some of them believe that, that one of the gods would give the child a mind. So like it was born without a mind, which is why it couldn't talk or do anything. And then at a certain age, it received a mind from their gods, and then it had value at, at that point. That was the way the Romans would have understood children. So this is also the reason why uh, we don't see a whole lot written about children during this time, because they just didn't think that they were that important. Now, for the Jews, of course, we would agree with the Jews that children are made in the image of God and that they have value, that every child has value. But for the Jews, they often had a more utilitarian understanding of children, which means that children were designed to carry on their culture or to preserve their religion. And so they wanted to have children because, remember, the Jewish people have always been under persecution, even until today. And one of the ways that they preserved their culture was passing that down to their children through the festivals, through the temple ministry, through this rich culture that they have. Even today, in places like New York, you have designated Jewish areas where it's almost like a completely different world that they're operating in, and their culture is so strong because that's all they've been able to hold on to because they've been under that persecution. And so they valued children as basically a, an opportunity for them to continue on their culture but the personality of the child wasn't necessarily an emphasis. Now, in America today, we have two extremes of the way that we understand children. Um, we either idolize children, and everything that we do is about that child, or often it's actually about us living our lives through that child, which is why we want them to be successful, or we hate our children and we kill them because they're an inconvenience. There's not a whole lot of in-between in America. There's not really a healthy biblical uh, theology of children, which as the family pastor here, I would love to talk about for the next hour, but I can't. Um, but we, we live in a different culture. So if you wonder, okay, why would he pick a child and say, you have to be like this child? The connection there is this person that you don't really think a whole lot about or that you don't esteem highly, you're not going to this person for advice. You're not expecting them to do anything productive in the home. It's a it's a little baby. It can't wash dishes. It can't do clothes. It can't go out and work. It doesn't really serve any purpose to you. You have to be like one of these people. In other words, you have to be humble, which is the way that Jesus explains it here. You have to humble yourself like this dependent child that 
doesn't think that they're anybody important, that's who you have to become in order to come into my kingdom. So how do we do that? We do that through a new birth and through a new father. So the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about here is reserved for his children. It's only for his children. All of us in here, every one of you, was not born as a child of God. Contrary to what you've heard on TV, everyone that's born is not born a child of God. We were born into the family of Adam, as we just heard in Psalm 51, as we've heard in some of the songs that we've sung today, which were intentional. We are born into the family of Adam. We are born into the family of men. Every human being is a descendant of Adam. There is one human race, and we are all connected to our father, Adam. And the way that God has set the universe up to work is you receive the benefits of your father. You receive an inheritance from your father. So all of us have therefore inherited the consequences of our father Adam's actions in his sin nature. All of us are born into sin. And so if the kingdom of God is for his children and we are born into the kingdom of Adam, how could we ever gain entry into the kingdom of God? The way that Jesus says it in John 3 is you must be born again. You have to be reborn into the family of God so that you are not only in Adam, but that you are in Christ. And when you are born again into the family of Christ, you receive the inheritance that your father, Christ, receives. And so we receive the benefits of Christ's obedience as believers in the same way that we received the judgment and condemnation of Adam, our first father. This is why the scripture calls Jesus the last Adam or the second Adam. Because in every way that Adam failed, Christ has succeeded on behalf of his people. So you must be born again in order to enter this kingdom. Maybe that day is today for you. You should consider that if that hasn't happened for you. Those who are looking for distinction in the kingdom of God will never enter the kingdom at all. This is what Jesus is saying. The one who says, how, how powerful, how mighty, how much honor, how much respect can I get in the kingdom of God? Jesus is saying, not only are you not going to receive distinction in the kingdom, you're not even in the kingdom. You're not, you won't even be there at all. It's a pretty, pretty harsh response when you think about it. There's no place in Jesus' kingdom for the prideful because uh, we have nothing to boast about. The scripture's clear. Uh, Romans 3, in, per- in particular, that whole chapter, but uh, many of the scriptures are clear. We have no grounds for boasting whatsoever when it comes to our salvation. It was God's idea. He provided the means for doing it. He drew us to himself. Uh, we, we did not convince Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, we, we did not live an entire life of sin and self-pleasure and one day just wake up and say, you know what, I think I'm actually going to die to myself and deny myself and turn from everything that that pleases me in my life and I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus just on our own. Nobody has ever just woken up one morning and decided, I'm just going to abandon everything that feels good in my life. That's not how human beings work. Uh, It's it's the power of God. Jesus, again, says in John 3, it's like the the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It comes and goes and you see what it's doing, but you don't understand it. It's the same, same with those who are born of the Spirit. We can see the evidence that a person is converted because of a change in their life. Specifically, Jesus is saying here, a change in their pride. If you, if you meet a prideful person, there's a really good chance that person is not born again. Because uh, someone who's prideful, the Scripture is clear. God resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. God does not have a place for you in, your, in his kingdom if you're a prideful person. And no one can boast. And he's specifically set up the gospel so there, there's no room for us to take credit for anything that he's done. So there's, there's a, a, not only do we have to have a new birth and a new father, but this is a new kingdom with a new king. So in order for you to enter a kingdom that you're not in, you have to realize that you're not in it. This is, this is, a, this is a big thing for us in the cultural south. I tell people all the time, the largest unreached people group in Haywood County is Baptist. That is the largest unreached people group. Because they will sit in church and they will think that they're in the kingdom and they're not really in the kingdom. And if you try to tell them that they're not in the kingdom, they will not listen to you. Evangelism is much harder in an atheistic culture than it is in the Bible Belt. And missionaries and church planners will tell you this. If you go up north, 
and you talk to somebody, and they're like, I'm an atheist, I hate God, I'm going to blaspheme God, I have nothing to do with religion, it's, okay, well, well, let's talk about it. And they'll have a conversation with you. If you go out on Main Street this afternoon, most people will not even have a conversation with you about Jesus, because as soon as you start sharing the gospel with them, they're going to say, oh, I'm already saved. I already prayed a prayer, I'm already a member of this church, even though I haven't been in 20 years, and I'm fine. And so it's actually harder to share the gospel in Waynesville than it would be in somewhere like New York. This is the reason why, by the way, the church plants that we partner with in New York and Miami and these other places, why are they seeing so many more people converted? Part of it's because they actually get to have a conversation about the gospel, and that doesn't happen here. Because everybody will just tell you, well, I'm a Baptist, and I don't need to hear what you have to say. And it's like, okay, uh, that's pride. If somebody tries to share the gospel with me, I'm going to be like, yeah, I want to hear what you have to say. Like, re- remind me. This is part of the reason why we're here this morning. We need to be reminded of the gospel. So if someone wants to remind me, I'm happy to be reminded that I've been saved for my sins. So you have to realize that you're not in a kingdom first to even enter that kingdom. And you can't enter a kingdom without being ruled by a king. So Jesus is the king. Jesus is Lord. He is not just Savior, but he is Savior and Lord. So again... How do we know if a person is humble or not? Well, we know, do I do what my king commands or not? Uh, if, if, I, if I say that Jesus is the Lord of my life, that I have surrendered to my life, my life to him, but the evidence of my life says that I am in control of my actions and decisions and thinking, then that means that I'm a Lord and Jesus is not Lord. Jesus said that uh, disciples should be more concerned about being in the kingdom than where they ranked in the kingdom. His warning to him, to, to the disciples here, is he's saying, be careful that in your attempt to figure out who's greatest, you don't just eliminate yourself altogether from the possibility of being in the kingdom. You need to have your concerns in the right place. And the other thing is, is when we're trusting in Christ, we're, we're trusting that he can get us to the end. This is the gospel. Our works are not going to get us to the end. Our morality is not going to get us to, to the end. Our church membership or church attendance or how much money we give to charity, none of those things are going to get us to the end. It's only Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that brings us to the end. So you think about when a, when a family goes on a trip. I have six kids. I've heard this. Anybody in here that has kids has heard this. You go on a trip, and the question that you get from the, the, the kids is what? Are we there yet? Right? I see some. Everybody knows that, right? Are we there yet? You ever notice the kids never ask, Are we going to get there? They never ask that. A child assumes that the father has the means to bring them to their destination. They assume that. So the question is not, Can you get us there, Dad? The question is, How long is it going to take for us to get there? This is the, the faith of a child. So the faith that Jesus is wanting us to have is not, can God get me to the end? Is Jesus enough to save me? That's not the question. The question is, how long is it going to take before Jesus comes back? Which is the question that we ask. It's, it's not, will he come back? Or am I going to be saved? Or will I be able to be in the kingdom? Or is it possible for me to be born again? It's, well, no, I just assume that if God has said it, that, that it, it is settled in heaven. And that he's decided that before the foundation of the world. So I'm assuming that he has the ability to carry out his holy will I'm just waiting for that to unfold. So the second thing I want you to notice in the text here is receipt before retribution. So let's look at verses 5 and 6. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but for whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Again, this is one of those passages that the people that you meet on the street that think Jesus is like a giant teddy bear that wants to hug everybody, they're not going to quote this passage. You know, Jesus never made anybody mad. He never offended anybody. He just loves everybody. It's like, well, Jesus said, it it wasn't just like something bad should happen to you. He's very specific here. This millstone that he's talking about is that it's drawn by a donkey. It's a giant several hundred pound millstone that they would hook a donkey up to to be strong enough to pull it around. And they would pour grain down in a hole and then it would grind up the, the grain that they needed. And Jesus is saying, take one of those stones that's a couple hundred pounds and tie it around that guy's neck and throw him in the ocean. It would be better for that to happen to him than for him to cause one of these ones to stumble. Because if he causes one of these little ones to stumble and he stands before my father, it will be infinitely worse than if he were just dead before he could do that. This is harsh language that Jesus is using here. This is not uh, friendly language that he's using here. 
So receipt before retribution. What do we mean by that? Well, first, we'll look at how Christ is received. He's saying, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So who are the little ones that he's talking about here? He's not talking specifically about children. Remember, he's using the child as an object lesson. And he's saying, you have to have the humility of this child. So he's saying, if there's a person in my kingdom who is humble like this child, who doesn't think too much of themselves, who isn't looking for glory, and somebody puts a stumbling block in front of them, somebody causes that person to fall into sin, my father will be severely angry with that person. It would be better for that person to die than to cause one of these humble people in my kingdom to sin. It's very harsh language that he's using here. But he's saying, if you receive one of these ones, if you see someone in the church who has humility, who's not looking for attention, they're not looking for the glory, they're not looking for the recognition, and you receive that person, you welcome that person, you pour your love out on that person, you support that person, you encourage that person, Jesus is saying, you're doing that to me. Because if I was here, I would be the lowest in the room. And he proves that later. He proves that he is the greatest in the kingdom because he is the greatest servant. And so he says, if I was in your church, I would be the lowliest most humble person in the whole church. And, and since I'm not there, if you'll find that person in your church and treat them with respect, it's the same as if I was here and you were treating it, treating it me that way. So especially for new believers, right? New believers are humble because uh, some, of, some of us didn't grow up in church in here. And when you came to Christ, you were rough, right? You came to Christ and, and I heard a guy's testimony last night and he was like swearing half of the testimony. Now, obviously, I don't support that, but I'm like, this guy's been saved for like five minutes. He doesn't know what he's doing. All he knows is, is God revealed to me that I'm a sinner and that I need to trust in Jesus for my salvation. And he's just beginning on that path. And what Jesus is saying here is don't blast that guy. <laughs> don't come in with, with the weight of legalism and everything else and say, well, now that you're a Christian here's a list of a million things that you can't do. That's not what God saved him to. He didn't save him to the law. And Jesus is saying, this is the same way that we should be treating uh, those who are humble, those who, those who come in and say, I'm just seeking Jesus. I don't really know anything. I don't understand the Bible that well. I'm learning a lot. I've got a lot of problems in my life. I'm dealing with a lot of things, but I'm, I'm just coming because, uh, because I need Jesus. That's the only reason why I'm here. And I know that I might not look like everybody else or talk like everybody else or, or work like everybody else or have the same uh, ideas as everybody else. I, I'm just coming humbly to learn something from God. And Jesus is saying, you need to treat that person as if it was me that just walked in. That's the attitude that you should have towards that person. Have an attitude of gentleness and compassion and humility towards that person. Not thinking, well, I am so much more spiritual than this person. But thinking... Uh, it, this person is greater in the kingdom than I am. Because what happens when that new believer has more humility than we do? That should convict us. I've, I've seen that happen in my own life. We also see the tempters rebuked here. So people who live in sin and encourage others to do so are provoking God. This is what Jesus is saying here. You are provoking the wrath of God. And, and Jesus is saying you would be better off dead. It is worse to lead somebody to sin than it is to sin yourself. Now, we all, we all sin. That happens. It's a, it's a battle that we have to deal with. It's something that we have to wrestle with. Unfortunately, that does not go away when we're converted uh, because, because we still have a body that was born into Adam's family. One day we will have a body that is born into Christ's family, and then we will not have to wrestle with sin anymore because those temptations will be removed. That's part of the good news that we have to look forward to. But if you as a believer... See one, of, see one of these people, one of these humble people in the kingdom of God, and you put something in front of them that causes them to stumble, that causes them to sin in their walk, Jesus is saying that you are provoking the wrath of God in your life. And it's something that we should take seriously. And remember, he's not saying this to unbelievers, he's saying it to his disciples. He's speaking to us here and saying, don't be the one to do it. If you look in your bulletin, one of our values that we have in there as a church is it says that we show love by consistently communicating God's truth to others. That sounds really good. 
withholding your help is the same as placing a stumbling block in front of someone. Now think about this. When we think about a stumbling block, we think, okay, so let's say this person, let's say this person God saved them out of a life of, of drug abuse, and, they're, and, and we're going to go down and minister to some people that are dealing with drug abuse. If this person's a new believer, they may not have the self-control to resist that temptation to drugs. It might not be the best idea for you to bring that person with you and for them to experience temptation by going back into that culture. Now, some people may be completely delivered from that and able to do that, but you have to consider that person. Now, you could be putting a stumbling block in front of that person by saying, I'm going to put you into an opportunity where you can sin that I know that you're weak in, and then when you do it, God is going to say, I blame you. That's your fault that that person sinned because you put that in front of them. But here's the other thing. Another way to put a stumbling block in front of someone is to do nothing. Doing nothing is just as bad as actively causing a person to sin. When we withhold our help from somebody, we are, we are not helping. When you allow a person around you to speak lies and place stumbling blocks in front of other people and you don't check that person, you're hating everyone that hears that person. And specifically, I'm thinking about false teachers here. Now, you know several times your pastors here have named names of people that are on TV or whatever, and I could go down a list of names. If, if they're on TV, there's a 95% chance they're probably wrong. I'll just put it that way. But not all of them, but a lot of them. But the reality is, if I know, if I have a family member, if I have a friend, somebody that I care about, and they say, well, I'm listening to so-and-so, or I'm going to this church that preaches a false gospel, and I don't check that person, and I don't say, hey, listen, I love you, and I know that you don't want to hear this, but I need you to really know that this person is not teaching the Bible. If I don't do that, I'm putting a stumbling block in front of them, because what I'm doing is I'm watching them about to trip on it, and I just sit there and do nothing. It's like watching a person's house, house catch on fire, and you know they're inside, and you're like, well, I'm not a firefighter. Can't do anything about it. And you just let them burn down. You're just as guilty as the person that started the fire in the house because you sat there and watched them do it and didn't do anything about it. There's a great example of this. If you, if you go on YouTube, Chris was the one that first showed me this video, and I love it. There's this old pastor called Ian Paisley, and he was also a, a member of Parliament in Britain. Uh, and there's this great video, if you go look it up on YouTube, of when Pope John Paul II visited the British Parliament. And as he begins to get up and speak, Ian Paisley stands up in the back, in, in the, like, the House of Lords or whatever their parliament thing is, with a giant sign that says, Pope John Paul II Antichrist, and begins preaching against the Pope from the back of the room. And they're calling him out of order. They took his poster away. He ripped another backup one that he had out and was holding it up. They had to escort him out. You know, now, now, this is a member of government, but he felt so strongly that the Pope was preaching a false gospel that when he got up there, he stood up publicly and rebuked him in front of everybody in that government and said, this man does not have a right to speak. He preaches a false gospel. He is an antichrist. Now, you might not have to do that at work, but guess what? The, days, the day is coming quickly for us where we are going to have to pay prices for taking stands on things. Somebody said to me recently that, that American Christians are going to have to develop a theology of getting fired. It's going to have to happen. It happens in other countries. You're going to have to have a backbone of, well, my work said that I've got to wear this or promote this or do this thing, and I'm just saying, no, I can't do that. And they're saying, well, you're not going to have a job. And I'm saying, well, God gave me this one. He can give me another one. That, that's going to have to happen where we're going to have to take a stand on things for that. And I'm not talking about being political. I'm talking about biblical because the day is coming soon when a lot of our employers are going to require us to follow some, some doctrine that they have for their religion that they're allowed to have. We're not allowed to practice our religion, but they are allowed to practice theirs. And we're going to have to stand against that and say, this, you're not my Lord. That, that doctrine is not my Lord. This job is not my Lord. The third thing I want you to see there is repentance before rebellion. So let's look at verses 7 through 9. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. 
If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, throughout history, some people have interpreted this literally. There's an early church father named Origen that actually did uh, mutilate himself because he was trying to obey this text. I would not recommend that to anyone this morning because we understand that this is not a, a, a literal example that Jesus is giving here. So the couple things that he's saying here is, first he's saying, don't encourage the inevitable. He's saying stumbling blocks are inevitable. We live in a sinful world. Situations and temptations are going to come into your life. And if you are not walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to fall into those traps and you're going to sin. And thankfully, uh, our salvation is not dependent on how many traps we don't fall into. It's dependent on how many traps Jesus didn't fall into, which is none. And so because his righteousness is credited to our account, we can have forgiveness even when we do stumble. But what Jesus is saying here is don't encourage the inevitable. You're going to have stumbling blocks in your life. Don't make it harder for yourself than you have to, and definitely don't make it harder for somebody else. This is one of the things that, that we have to consider with our brothers and sisters is, I need, for one, you've got to know your church family. If you don't know your church family, you don't know what their stumbling blocks are. You have to have a relationship with somebody. It's different for everybody in our church. We all have different stories, different backgrounds, different testimonies, different things that God has saved us from and is saving us from. Those are all different. But if you don't know anybody, you can't really know how to love that person well. So you've got to know the people in your church. But you never want to encourage them to fall into a stumbling block. Again, if you see that person and they're about to trip or you see their house is on fire, you want to warn that person like, hey, this is not good for you. This is not going to go well. How can I help you stay away from that situation? How can I help you not go back to that life that God saved you from or go back to those habits or those decisions or those addictions or those idols that God has delivered you from? How can I help you with that? This is the attitude that we need to have towards each other. And so we never want to put something in front of somebody that's going to cause them to stumble. Calvin said it this way. He said, It is the will of God to leave his people exposed to offenses in order to exercise their faith and to separate believers as the refuse and chaff from the pure wheat. So he's saying that stumbling blocks are put there in part because it gives us an opportunity for obedience. What, what good do we have obeying God if we never have a decision to obey God? And when that stumbling block comes, there's a decision in our mind. This is the old me would have done this. But I've been born again. So do I choose to do what my flesh wants to do, or do I choose to do what the Holy Spirit in me wants to do? And I have to make a choice. And guess what? One of the ways that you can tell whether someone is in Christ or not is which one they choose. And we don't do that perfectly. But a lot of people, again, a lot of people, you'll talk to them and they'll say, I'm a Christian. And I'll say, but what do your choices say? And their choices say, I always choose the flesh. That person's not a Christian. There, there, there's a mixture. There might be some bad fruit on your tree, but if it's all bad fruit, the tree's bad. Jesus said that. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide means you'll bear much fruit. If you're not bearing any good fruit, you're not abiding in the vine. It's a very simple illustration that he has here. Now, a tree is not saved by the fruit. It's saved by the root. <laughs> and the root is Christ, not our works. So we don't want to encourage the inevitable. The second thing, and one of the most important things that Jesus is saying in this text is kill your sin. Kill your sin. Relentlessly, ruthlessly, very seriously deal with the sin in your life. As Christians, we should not be satisfied with a world where people have no chance of escaping temptations. We should not be able to look at the world and say, okay, if I was in this person's situation, there is no way out for me to obey God. And so we should be actively, as Christians, working against that world. Because that's the world the devil wants, right? He wants to just lay out a minefield everywhere, and you can't go anywhere without stepping on one. That's what he wants to lay out. And as Christians, what are we doing? We're clearing that path. We're like the minesweeper that's going through, clearing out that field and saying, hey, just come along behind me, and you'll be okay. And that is the Holy Spirit, right? If we're going along behind him, He's going to protect us. He's going to lead us in the safe path that we can go in and not stumble. We want to be following him. And so as Christians, we're plowing through the field of the world through the power of the Holy Spirit and telling the whole world, come along with us, come join us, come, come follow this life with us, and you're not going to get blown up in the end. 
This is, this is essentially the message that we're giving to them. Jesus is saying here that we need to remove obstacles between us and the grace of God with extreme prejudice. That's why he's using extreme language here. He's saying, if you know that there's a temptation that you're susceptible to, if you have a besetting sin in your life, you need to do whatever is necessary to ruthlessly put that sin to death. Take whatever measures that you have to take to ensure that that temptation is removed. Now, we're always going to have temptations, but a lot of times we want to compromise or we want to take a a lesser strategy. We'll say, okay, well, I'm tempted in this area, so I can make some adjustments in my life. Jesus is like, no, you have to die to that. Whatever that thing is, you're like, I am completely cutting myself off from this temptation so that it is not a part of my life at all. It's completely removed from my life. The way that he says is don't just cut it off, but cast it from you. Like, I couldn't even go back and put that hand on if I wanted to. It's gone. Like, I got rid of it. And so whatever that sin is in our lives, it's a matter of, okay, what could I do that would basically eliminate the possibility of me even having this sin and try to do that? Sometimes we can't, but try to do that and, and be working at it. You know, the way that, that, that the Puritans said it was, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's the truth. This is a battle that we are fighting. You will be crushed and destroyed by your sin if you are not actively fighting against it. If you're not actively fighting against sin in your, right, in your life right now and you feel like things are pretty calm, it, it's because the devil has deceived you. It's because you have pet sins that, that don't come up to the surface a lot or that people don't see, and so you're comfortable with it. So you allow it to kind of be there and you just kind of pet it. And it's like as long as it stays nice over here and I feel like I have control of it, then it's okay. And that's the lie is that you have any control over it whatsoever because guess what? Apart from Christ, it controlled you. It was your Lord. Paul says we were slaves to sin. That thing that you think in your life of like, well, I know this doesn't please God, but it's not that bad. It's not really out of control. Paul says that's your, that's your master. That's your real master. And how do you know that you're not a slave to it anymore? When you rebel against it. Because when you rebel against it and you say, no, I'm not living anymore. Jesus is Lord. This sin is not Lord. And you actually live your life with that, then you're proclaiming, I am in the right kingdom. I am in his kingdom with my life. One mark of a a Christian life is a severe response to temptation. This is one of the things with your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, people that observe your life. This is one of the biggest marks that they will notice of whether you're a Christian or not is the way that you respond to temptation. Everybody has temptation. Even unbelievers have temptation. One of the things that marks the church as, as a separate people of God is the way that they respond to temptation. So when you have that conversation of, hey, let's go, let's go watch this movie, and, and your response is, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Well, Why? there's some stuff in there that's a temptation for me, and I, I can't subject myself to that. That's kind of weird. It's, well, I'm not like you. Or, hey, we're going to go out to this event, and it's like, I, I can't be a part of some of the stuff that you guys are doing. Well, why not? Because it's a temptation for me. It's a temptation for that person, too. But what marks you as a Christian is you saying, um, I'm fighting that sin. I'm resisting that. That's uh, I don't have permission from my master, from my Lord, from my king to go and do that activity. I can only do what he allows me to do. And we don't like that as Americans because we're like, we don't like kings. We started this country because we were against kings. But guess what? If you're going to be a Christian, it's, it's a kingdom. It's not a democracy. It's a kingdom. It's not a republic. And part of claiming Jesus as Lord, this is what got them in trouble with the Romans, right? Just drop this incense in here and say, Kaiser Kyrgios, Caesar's Lord, and you can believe whatever you want, just say it and it'll be enough. No, I would rather die. Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Kill me. This is what they died over was like two words. Just say Caesar is Lord and we'll let you go. No, I would rather die than confess Caesar is Lord. This was the response of the church for hundreds of years. And the question is, when somebody invites us to do some kind of simple activity or, or we make some kind of decision uh, that we're doing, we're so quickly to say, yeah, that's Lord. That movie's Lord. That activity's Lord. This friend's Lord. That relationship that I want to be in is Lord. The respect of this person is Lord. Whatever it is becomes Lord instead of saying, no, I would rather die than say Jesus is not Lord in this particular instance. And it's easy to look at the martyrs and say, well, they laid down their lives for that. 
But guess what? Before they got to that point, there was a hundred other things that nobody knows about that was never written down that they were willing to lay their lives down for about over that issue. And so it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, I would be willing to die for Jesus. But you only have to do that once. The Christian life is you have to do it every day, all the time, constantly provided opportunities to sin. And you're saying, Jesus is Lord. Five minutes later, Jesus is Lord of that. Oh, I had this thought, Jesus is Lord over that. Oh, this person wanted me to do this thing, Jesus is Lord over that. My work wants me to do such and such. No, Jesus is Lord over that. All day, all day long. That's the Christian life. It's not one time giving your life up for Jesus. It's all time giving your life up for Jesus. Think about the rich young ruler, right? We know this story. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus, I've kept all these laws. What do I need to do in order to receive eternal life? How do I come into your kingdom, right? And Jesus' response is, go and sell everything that you have, and, and then you'll, you'll be able to come and follow me if you go and sell everything that you have. So then well, the way a lot of people would apply that text is, well, see, Jesus is saying we can't have stuff. We talked about that last week. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is uh, surrender the lordship of money in your life. Stop worshiping money and worship me instead, and then you can follow me. Because as long as your money is more important to you than me, you're not fit for my kingdom. I, I, won't, even, I won't even accept you into my kingdom because, it, because your worship of money is pride. Does that mean we can't have money? No, we are, we are free to have and enjoy all the money that God wants to give us that is not idolatrous. We're free to do that. When it becomes an idol in your heart, and it either becomes a bragging point of, look at all this wealth that I've accumulated in my own strength, or it becomes your dependence of this wealth is my, is my savior, then it becomes an idol in your heart and it's sin. It's not about the, the substance. It's not about the money. It's about the heart. And with the rich young ruler, Jesus is saying exactly what he's the, saying to the disciples here. You want to enter my kingdom? Kill your idols. Kill your sin. Relentlessly. And, and, and go to an extreme. It's not enough to say, he could have told him, I want you to give more to the temple, and that will show me that you're dedicated to God. He said, I want you to give away every dime that you have. I want you to take the most extreme position you can on your sin, and I want you to kill that idol and kill it dead. And that's what he wants us to do with the idols in our lives. So lastly, in verse 10 here, we see esteem before entrance. So see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So one of the things that we need to see here is that God sees the little ones. He sees the little ones. These people in his kingdom that are, that are humble, that don't think that they're a big deal, that aren't looking for recognition, God sees them. So the root of our sinful pride is looking down or thinking down on others. In the Greek, it literally means thinking down on someone, thinking that you're better than someone else. That's, that's the root of pride. And Jesus is saying here, don't despise one of these little ones. In other words, when you see somebody in the church that seems like a nobody, don't think that you're better than that person. Let's be, let's be honest. Uh, if you're a visitor, you don't know... Uh, a lot of the people in our church. Our church is a very intellectual church. And I don't say that as, as bragging, but I just say that's the culture that we are. Almost everybody in our church reads theology regularly. They listen to things throughout the week. They have conversations. We have very deep conversations in our groups and our classes and other things. Culturally, that's the people that we are. Let's be careful that we are not using our intellect to look down on other Christians and say, well, because this person doesn't know this big word that I know, or they haven't heard the amount of sermons that I've heard, or they haven't read the books and taken the classes that I've looked, I must be better in the kingdom than that person is because I'm smarter than they are. Be careful, church. Because what he's saying here is, is don't despise them. And why not? He's saying, not only does God see them, but God sees you. And you need to be aware that when you're seeking grace from the throne of God, that you're not seeking grace from the same throne that others are petitioning God to do something with you about. Because they're coming to the throne too. And this is what he's talking about with the angels here. Just as an aside, this is not talking about guardian angels. Some people are like, this is a guardian angel, and we all have an angel that follows us around. That's not a, a doctrine that's taught clearly in the Bible. That's not what it's saying here. What he's saying here is, is they're called our angels because they are assigned to be God's messengers to us or to minister to us from God. So what he's saying is, is there are angels in heaven that are ministering to, to you, right? Maybe not a specific one, but in general, they're ministering to the people of God on behalf of God. 
and their messengers, right? So God hears, hey, what's, what's going on at Barberville? And the messengers are saying, okay, this, this is what this person's praying about. This is what's going on in this person's life. They're reporting the activity that's going on there. Be careful that when you come to the throne of God and say, God, I, I need your grace in my life. I need greater forgiveness. I need, I need the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I need you to answer this or provide this thing for me. Be careful that he's not getting mixed messages at the throne, that he's getting messages from you asking him for blessing, and he's getting messages from a humble brother or sister asking God to break the teeth of the wicked, and it's you. Be careful that, you, that the Lord is not getting mixed messages about your life. Because you might find that instead of receiving blessing from him, you might receive a curse from him. Because in your heart, you think that everything is right because of your pride, and in reality, you don't. Remember, Jesus tells the story of the two men who came to the temple. One of them says, you know, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this sinner over here, this man, and walks away. He says the other man couldn't even lift up his face to heaven and just said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that was the man that walked away justified. We need to make sure that we're the second guy and not the first guy. And so we need to be very careful in, in the way that we treat others. So in conclusion, uh, William Barclay said this. He said, It is the supreme responsibility of the parent, of the teacher, and of the Christian church to see that a child or a little one's dynamic possibilities for good are realized. To stifle them, to leave them untapped, to twist them into evil powers is sin. So our job as a church is to make sure children, not obviously the real children, the, the literal children, but new believers that we're cultivating them, we're encouraging them, we're making sure that they're using their gifts, that they're growing, that they're getting the resources and the training that they need and the discipleship and relationships that they need. It's our responsibility to do that. So in summary, entry before exaltation. So before you discover what role you play in God's kingdom, make sure you've entered it first. Receipt before retribution. Before you are given a harsh punishment from God, humble yourself and think of others, especially the immature, as greater than yourself. Repentance before rebellion. Before you are given over to a reprobate mind and ruin yourself for all of eternity, make sure that you're killing your sin. And esteem before entrance. Before you go to God to ask him to bless you, make sure others are not asking him to curse you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for your word again. We ask that you would do your perfect work in each one of our hearts. Lord, forgive us where we have thought more of ourselves than we ought to. Forgive us, Lord, for the sin of pride. We know that you are the only one worthy of glory, the only one worthy of praise. Every good thing that we have has come from you. We have not done anything for ourselves. And so, Lord, help us to realize that you are great and we are not that you are God and we are not, that you are king, that you are Lord, that you are master, and we are not. I pray that you would give each one here uh, the victory over their sin that they are willing to pursue. In the degree that they're willing to pursue killing their sin, I, pr I pray that you would bless it and remove it from them. I pray for those who are not in your kingdom this morning, Lord, that you would bring them in, that you would invite them to come in by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that today they would be born again into your family. Father, I pray that as a church that we would have a reputation of being a humble people before you and not an arrogant people. In Christ's name, amen.